We are back in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in order that the events happened in, to discover who Jesus was for ourselves, what he really said, what he really did, what he really taught. We want to know him firsthand directly so that our own personal faith is grown and our relationship with the Lord is developed. Last time we were in our study, Jesus was rejected for what would be the final time in his hometown. His hometown, of course, being a place called Nazareth. And this week, we're going to pick up our study right after the events of Jesus' final visit to Nazareth. This week is going to be part one of a message we're calling The Cost of Christ. It's an incredible chapter. We're going to be centered around Matthew chapter 10. And it's one of these chapters which really highlights the difference between the pop culture Jesus and the Jesus of the Bible. We're going to encounter a very different Jesus to the one we're maybe used to seeing or maybe used to hearing about from other people. It's one of those chapters that doesn't really break neatly and evenly, so we're just going to have to kind of stop halfway and pick it up next time. We're going to see Jesus send out his disciples in pairs, two by two, to do ministry without him. Jesus is going to give them some very specific instructions, and then he's going to lay out the price that anybody willing to follow him must be willing to pay. Let's pick it up in the chapter before that, Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 35 because this lead into chapter 10 is important. Verse 35, Matthew 10, it says this, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness. I want you to underline every sickness and every every disease among the people. Underline every disease among the people. The reason I had you underline those two words, every, is because whenever there is a redundancy in the Bible, whenever a word comes up repetitively, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something. It's trying to draw our attention to something. And we're going to have to deal with the fact that The way Jesus heals here is very different to how we see anybody healing today. Jesus healed everyone, everyone on this occasion and on several other occasions. And if we're honest, we don't see that in our world today. This was an unprecedented display of healing power that we will find out was designed to serve as the evidence that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, God in the flesh. The miracles that Jesus did authenticated his message and authenticated him as the messenger. We're going to find out there's a very specific reason why we don't see miracles happen with the same predictability and consistency today that we saw during the life and ministry of Jesus. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Verse 36, it says, But when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes, when he saw all the people, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus was deeply moved on an emotional level by the aimlessness he observed in those who didn't know him. He looked at them and his heart broke for them because whether they realized it or not, their lives had no purpose. They were lost and they were walking in metaphorical circles in life like sheep having no shepherd. And that is no different to how most people are who live 
and breathe and walk around us every day in the places we work, in the places we go to school. They think they know what life is all about, but Jesus looks at them and says, if you don't know me, your life is aimless, it's meaningless, it's purposeless, it's pointless, and it still breaks his heart. They are sheep without a shepherd. So what is Jesus going to do about this? Verse 37, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And here's his solution. Therefore, pray. I want you to underline pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So get this. It's your first fill-in. Jesus is using prayer to give his disciples his heart for the lost. Jesus is using prayer to give his disciples his heart for the lost. Jesus points out to them what he sees when he looks at people, sheep without a shepherd. He says, hey guys, check it out. The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. You're right, Jesus. What are we going to do, the disciples must have said. Well, first we need to pray that God would meet that need. Jesus directs them to prayer as the first step in seeing God move to solve this problem, these sheep without a shepherd. And as they prayed, something began to happen in them because you can't pray for something with passion and not end up having a heart for it. So Jesus stirs passion in his disciples by illuminating the need and then leading them to pray for it. And suddenly the heart that Jesus has for these lost people is transferred into his disciples. His passion is transferred to them as they take it up in prayer. And then here's the mind-blowing part. In the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 10, those same disciples we just saw pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Those same disciples who prayed that will become the answer to their own prayer. You can write that down. They became the answer to their own prayer. In verse 5 of the very next chapter, chapter 10, it will begin by saying these 12, the 12 that had just prayed, Jesus sent out. God will give you a heart for people as you pray for them. He'll give you his heart for them. We're just going to keep going into Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. It says this, And when he, Jesus, had called his 12 disciples to him, I want you to underline the word disciples there, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. You see, their healing ministry, the healing ministry of the disciples, would also be to authenticate their preaching ministry. Again, the miracles were to authenticate the message and the messengers. So Jesus enabled them to demonstrate that they had credibility as messengers, that their message was true by giving them the power to perform these incredible miracles. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk in just a little bit about why it's not quite the same today. I love that even as Matthew is writing all this down, Matthew, one of the 12, is writing this down. He is emphatic about the fact that the power the apostles had was given to them by Jesus. 
It was given to them by Jesus. A recurring theme in this chapter is going to be the importance in ministry of always remembering that our gifts, our talents, our abilities, and our resources all come from the Lord. The minute you forget that, you'll become puffed up with pride and very difficult for God to use effectively. You see, you can't be a believer. You can't be a Christian man and also claim to be a self-made man. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to need to always remember that everything you were able to achieve in life was because of the gifts that God placed in you. And if you ever forget that, it's going to be very hard for God to use you. Never forget, God gave us the time. He gave us the talent. He gave us the treasure. He gave us the abilities, the resources. It all comes from him. Let's make sure we never forget that. Verse 2, it says, now the names of the 12, and then I want you to underline apostles, the 12 apostles. They were disciples in verse 1, now they're apostles in verse 2, and these are their names. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him, looking ahead to the future, obviously. We've discussed the apostles and their individual lives in detail in earlier messages in this series, so we're not going to go into detail on them at this time. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like to. We're just going to keep trucking. Notice that the 12 here, as I mentioned, are called disciples in verse 1, but then here they are now apostles in verse 2. A disciple is someone who is a learner, who's a pupil, who's a student. An apostle is a disciple who has become qualified enough to be sent out with orders. But if you've been following our story and if you've been following the spiritual development of these disciples, you know they are not very developed even at this time. So what in the world qualified these men to be apostles? I don't see any graduation ceremony in the scriptures. I don't see Jesus saying, well, you've learned everything you need to know now, so you're ready to go out. Nothing like that happened. So what in the world qualified them to graduate from being disciples to being apostles? Not what, but whom? And the answer to that, of course, is Jesus. They were qualified because they had been with Jesus and they were sent by Jesus. The moment Jesus sent them, they were qualified by virtue of the fact that Jesus sent them. Never forget this. The Lord does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Jesus called us sons and daughters long before we ever earned that right. We can never earn that right in this life, but he gave the title to us anyway. And the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus is motivated in each of us by the understanding that we've been called sons and daughters of God. And something in us says, man, I want to live up to that. I want to live up to that. You see, Jesus doesn't set a level and say, come up here. And when you reach this level, you can become my son or my daughter. He says, just tell me you want to be my son or my daughter. And I'll give you that title now. And then we are motivated to live for Jesus because he's already given us that title. And though we can never live up to it in this life, we will fully live up to that title in the presence of God in eternity. So these disciples were qualified because Jesus called them. 
And that's the only qualification that mattered in this instance. Jesus was the one who called them. Jesus will now begin giving some instructions to the apostles. And as we read through this, you just need to be aware that not all of Jesus' instructions are applicable to us. Some of his instructions were specifically for these apostles of the past. In verse 5, it says this, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. This is very different to Acts chapter 1 where Jesus tells his disciples, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a different mission. This is a different focus. So why is Jesus sending the disciples exclusively to the Jews at this time? That's a good question. The answer is that while the Jews didn't take priority, they did take precedent. You see, the Jews had been prepared for the Messiah's arrival for thousands of years through the law, the prophets, and the scriptures. Write that down. The Jews had been prepared for the Messiah's arrival for thousands of years through the law, the prophets, and the scriptures. Even their annual feasts were part of their preparation to receive the Messiah. They should have been more ready than anyone to recognize and receive Jesus as their Messiah. Secondly, I believe Jesus sends the disciples to the Jews because they were extremely prejudiced against anyone non-Jewish. Remember that the Jews at this time thought anyone who wasn't Jewish was basically kindling for hell. Nice, right? Jesus knew that pretty much no Jew would receive their message if they went to the Gentiles first. Jesus isn't saying that's right. He's just saying that's the reality. So he had the apostles go to their own people, the Jews first, knowing that they would all go to the Gentiles later on. Later on, the gospel would go to the Gentiles. But the Jews had to take precedent as going first. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs. Why is that? Because under Jewish law, Two witnesses were always required in any legal proceeding to establish a matter as true. That's in Deuteronomy 19.15. No good Jew would have taken them seriously unless there were two of them testifying to the same truth. So in order for anyone to just listen to their message, they had to be in pairs. There are also many practical benefits to doing ministry with somebody. There's accountability, there's encouragement, there's someone to pray with. In Ecclesiastes, it says this. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. You've probably seen this too. When believers tend to isolate themselves from the church, from their brothers and sisters in Christ, from godly fellowship, they get into some weird stuff. They hear something that's not really true, but maybe it's presented as though it is, and they believe it because they don't have brothers or sisters around them telling them that's not the truth. This is what the Word of God says. Jesus knows if you're going to go through a spiritually challenging time in life, and this assignment would have been a challenge, Jesus knew there is great benefit to not being alone as you walk through life with the Lord. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need them, and we still need them today. Verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the what? 
What does your Bible say? The kingdom of what? The kingdom of heaven, that's right, is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want you to underline kingdom of heaven because it's different to the kingdom of God. This is something separate and distinct. The kingdom of God is a matter, as we know, the word of God says, of peace, love, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom that we're a part of. But Jesus is offering the Jews a spiritual kingdom, but also a literal kingdom. This is going to blow your mind a little bit here. But Jesus is telling his disciples to let the people of Israel know that in him, Jesus the Messiah, heaven had come to earth. The kingdom of heaven was on the earth. Staggeringly, Jesus was telling his disciples to offer the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. What you and I look forward to in the future, what we call the millennium, is what Jesus is practically offering the Jews right now. In the future, we know that the rapture is going to take place. The church will go to be with Jesus. There will be a period of time around seven years, maybe a little bit more before that time period starts. But then after the seven-year tribulation, Jesus is going to come back to the earth with us, with his church. It's going to be the second coming of Christ. And he's going to set up his literal, physical, political rule and reign on the earth for a thousand literal years. The Bible says we will rule and reign with him on the earth for that thousand years. And that time period is generally known as the millennium. It's when the world is going to go back to a Garden of Eden type state. The lion's going to lie down with the lamb. The, the lame will leap. The blind will see. All of those things are going to happen when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And Jesus is offering that to the Jews right there and then. If they would accept him as their Messiah. It's a staggering offer, and you've got to understand this. This is different to just the gospel. This is something different. Jesus is offering the people of Israel the chance to accept his rule and reign on the earth right there and then. Right there and then. So make that your next fill-in. Jesus tells his disciples to offer the Jews heaven on earth. Heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven. And in the very next verse, verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to give them the power to demonstrate for people what his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, would be like. He's going to give his disciples, the 12 apostles, the power to give people a sneak preview of what the kingdom of heaven would be like. This is what he says. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. This is so important because the ability to consistently and predictably do these things, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, is something that comes along with the kingdom of heaven ruling on the earth. Jesus was telling his disciples to give people a preview of what it would be like. This is why we don't see this happening all the time in our world. I know Jesus still heals people. I know that lepers are still cleansed. I know that the dead are still raised and demons are cast out, but it doesn't happen consistently and predictably. There's no one in the world who can heal anybody who comes up to them. There's no one who has a healing ministry like Jesus where he healed every sickness and every disease and cast out every demon. Because that is something that is unique to the kingdom of heaven being on the earth. And if you don't understand this, you will get caught up in following someone who says, it should be like this. So at our church, there should be every sickness healed every Sunday. It's not going to be like that until the rule and reign of Jesus comes back 
in the millennium. Don't get caught up in chasing miracles. Do what the Bible says. Pray for the sick. Believe in faith. But understand, we are not in the millennium yet. The kingdom of heaven is not on the earth yet. According to the Lord's Prayer, we're supposed to be praying for the day when it is, when the kingdom of heaven returns to the earth and Jesus comes back to reign. But what do we know from the rest of the Bible? Well, we know that those who welcomed Jesus in Israel were a tiny minority. As a collective people and nation, they rejected Jesus and in doing so also rejected the kingdom of heaven. And as a result of rejecting the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says, Paul writes in Romans 11, that the Jews as a people have been partially blinded and made unable to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Because they would not receive the kingdom of heaven, God partially blinded them so they could not receive him at all. And that reality continues to this day. You are not going to go start a revival among the Jews in Israel because the Bible says they are under partial blindness. The Jews rejected the kingdom of heaven. And after that, the opportunity opened up for us, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to be brought into the family of God. We are in the age of grace for the Gentile, the non-Jew, and the age of blindness for the Jew. We're in what's known as the church age. The church age had a beginning and it will have an end at the rapture. And at some point after the rapture, something amazing is going to happen. There's going to be a moment when the fullness of the Gentiles has come into the kingdom of God. That means the moment is going to come when God says, okay, the opportunity for people to respond to the gospel who are not Jewish is over. The time for the Gentiles is over. The fullness of them is coming to the kingdom of God. And at that time, between the rapture and the second coming, at some point, Jesus will offer the kingdom of heaven to Israel again and will enable them to recognize him as their Messiah. And they will accept the kingdom of heaven that time. And Paul writes that all Israel will be saved. You see, God never gives up on his people and his kindness displayed to Israel across the millennia of their unfaithfulness to them is to highlight and reveal to us the riches of his grace and his kindness toward all people especially those who don't deserve his kindness he's faithful even when we are faithless and God reveals that through his faithfulness to the people of Israel if this all sounds really weird to you I encourage you to read Romans 11 read the whole thing this week it's laid out there really clearly Paul lays it all out for you it's pretty mind-blowing stuff but at this time in the history of Israel they rejected Jesus and they rejected the kingdom of heaven and that's why we don't see miracles happening today with the same consistency and predictability that we would see in the New Testament. Write this down. Because those things were a preview of the kingdom of heaven. A preview of the kingdom of heaven. What life would be like under the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus gave his disciples those miraculous abilities to authenticate their message and to prove that they really had the authority to offer the kingdom of heaven to the people of Israel on Jesus' behalf. The miracles were to prove that Jesus, the one who had sent them, really was the Messiah and really had the authority required to make such an offer. Just think about this to prove the point. Even in the ministry of Paul, 
it wasn't the same as it was with the 12 apostles and with Jesus. Miracles happened where Paul went, absolutely, but not with the same consistency, certainty, and predictability that defined the ministry of the 12. As we discussed last week, Paul had a physical ailment that the Lord wouldn't heal. Paul asked him three times to take it away, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul advised Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach ailment in 1 Timothy. He didn't just heal him. And another time, Paul left a man named Trophimus. He even writes in 2 Timothy, he said, I left him sick in the city of Miletus. Paul couldn't heal him. The kingdom of heaven was something being put on preview here. It was something different, something distinct and unique. Jesus gave the 12 apostles a special amount of power for the express purpose of giving people a preview of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on and says, freely you have received, what a verse this is, freely you have received, freely give. And I would suggest that there's an application here for all of us, especially in the area of ministry. Jesus is telling his disciples that the ability that they have to minister to others comes from him. He gave it to them freely, and he wants them to give it away in ministry freely. Each of us has received talents and gifts and abilities and financial resources from the Lord. Jesus would say to each of us very simply, remember those things came from me in part that you might use them to minister to other people. So don't be stingy with your gifts. Freely you've received, freely give. And we're going to find out later in Matthew 10 that using those gifts may be as simple as giving somebody at church a cup of cold water. might be that simple. Verse 9, he says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics. Historians tell us that the word tunics there was most likely used to mean underwear. They're undergarments. And I, this cracks me up because Jesus is basically saying, don't try and get around my instructions by wearing two pairs of underwear. I know what you guys are thinking. Don't do it. One pair of underwear. He says, nor sandals, nor staffs. A staff would just be a walking stick, but also something used for protection when traveling. For a worker is worthy of his food. Jesus wants his disciples to go out and minister on faith. He's giving them a taste of the lifestyle of an apostle, a missionary, a sent one, where God meets their needs as they place their faith in him. Do you realize Jesus was always, always working to build the faith of his disciples? You might remember that recently they had had a huge lesson in faith when Jesus took them through a life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee. The storm came, they almost died, Jesus was sleeping, then he woke up and calmed the storm with just a few words. In that instance, Jesus was in the boat with them. This time, Jesus is going to send them out without him. He's ramping up the challenge by challenging their faith and calling them to take the next step of faith. He doesn't want them to stay where they are. As we always say, faith builds upon faith. He wants to take them to greater places of faith. And their next step is going to be learning to trust Jesus even when he's not with them visually. As a side note, we don't know if this period where the disciples go out in pairs is three weeks or three months. We don't know. But this is a season of what we call survival faith. You will find that if you follow Jesus, he will lead you through a season or seasons of survival faith. These are seasons of life where everything you would normally trust in and rely upon seems to disappear. And there is only one lesson that you are learning, and it's this. Write this down. 
you'll never understand that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You'll never understand that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples during this exercise. And if you're going through that season right now, and like the disciples, you have to rely on Jesus just for today's groceries, let me remind you of one vital truth. It's only for a specific season. It's not going to go on forever. This is not how Jesus is going to ask his disciples to live out the rest of their lives. It's just a season to grow and stretch their faith and trust in his provision. If you're here and you're thinking, I can't wait for this survival faith season to be over, just know I feel you. I feel you. I'm right there with you. Please remember this. God will always ask you and I to remember his past faithfulness in order to boost our trust in his future faithfulness. Don't have a short memory when it comes to God's faithfulness. Remember what he's got you through in the past. Build up that memory bank of what he's done for you before and it'll build your faith for what you need him to do for you in the future. There's something else here that every believer needs to understand and I need to point it out now while we're there in the Bible so that you can see it with yourself in the text. If you look at verse 10, you're gonna see the word bag. Do you see that? That word in the original language actually means beggar's bag. And this would be something a beggar would put out in front of them to ask for money, like a busking musician. And Jesus expressly says to his disciples, don't take one of those with you. I believe that when Jesus says to his disciples, who he is sending out to do ministry, freely you have received, freely give, he is saying, guys, don't sell tickets to your ministry. Don't charge anything. Don't sell your sermons. Don't put out a will heal for food sign. Don't use a financial model where you charge people to receive ministry. Now, this is usually where somebody starts going, amen, I believe in that model. I shouldn't have to contribute any money to any ministry. And I'm glad none of you are saying that right now because you'd look pretty stupid if you had said that. But maybe you're thinking it. If you are thinking that, then slow down because we're not done yet. Jesus goes even further with his disciples telling them, not only do I want you to not charge for the ministry I'm sending you out to do, even to cover your costs, I don't want you to pack anything. No change of clothes, no spare pair of shoes, no walking stick, no food, no money, nothing. So what's the plan then? How are the disciples even going to eat? Well, Jesus tells us, for a worker is worthy of his food. Jesus is telling his disciples that while he's sending them out to do ministry, it's not just going to be, oh, this is so much fun. I'm going to pray for people. You're healed. You're healed. Here's an encouraging word. Smiles, hugs, fun, 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 fun. Jesus is saying, listen, the ministry I'm sending you out to do is going to be work. It's going to be real work, hard work. You're going to spend yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually you're going to be dedicating yourself to your work like a worker would dedicate themselves to their job, except this is going to cost you emotionally and spiritually as well. And the implication of what Jesus is saying is this. Get this. Jesus is telling them the people who benefit from your ministry will provide everything you need. They will provide the finances and the resources that you need as ministers of the gospel. They'll make sure your needs are met. 
He's saying that if a person values the gospel and the ministry that they are receiving from somebody, they will be concerned with that person's practical needs being met. Jesus directly links receiving him in his message with meeting the practical needs of those he sends with the message. Paul is going to address the same truth in places like 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 14 and 1 Timothy 5, 18. In our context, in our day, the sad truth is that many believers value the services they receive from their cable company more than the ministry they receive from the apostles God sent to their city or town. That's the sad truth. Many people believe the cable company is more worthy of their support than the ministers that God sends to their church, to their town to grow them and disciple them spiritually. Jesus is going to use this little test run of ministry to impart to his disciples a financial model for ministry. If the people I send you to receive me, one of the ways they're going to show that is by meeting your practical needs. That's how this is going to work. But sometimes Christians, including the disciples, are sent to hostile people who won't meet their needs. But God still wants them to go. In those instances, even in Scripture, we see ascending church in books like Acts funding that missionary journey. Churches like the Antioch Church. In fact, the next time Jesus sends his disciples out, he'll include completely different instructions. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. So we need to make sure we realize what is a model and what is just a description of what happened. I point this out to remind us that When we're all reading the Bible, we need to use discernment to figure out what is prescriptive, what is a model for us, and what is descriptive, what's just a historical account that we need to be aware of but not necessarily duplicate. I think many of us would agree that the best model for ministry is not to go out with no money, no clothes, no food, no anything. Many of us, especially those of us who have families, would agree that 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 might be negligent, especially when God has provided people that he's called to meet those needs. So some of this is a model. Some of this is not a model. And I was talking to a friend the other day. This is part of the reason I'm talking about this. And he was telling me about how a very well-known pastor, if I said his name, you'd all recognize him. He's really hot right now was talking about this passage we're in right now and saying, that's the model. We, we need to be poor. We need to give up everything and go and serve Jesus and have nothing to do ministry. And he was saying, this is the model. And, and the problem with that is, as I said, later on, Jesus is going to send the disciples out in pairs again, and the model is going to be totally different. That time he's going to tell them to take money with them. That time, he's going to tell them that they need to take extra clothing with them. He's going to say, if you have an extra coat, sell it and buy a short sword. So are we now going to say no missionary should go out unless they're packing heat? Is that going to be our new model for ministry? If you're not armed, you shouldn't go out and do ministry? Of course not. Why? Because it's descriptive. It's something that God was doing there and then. Jesus is growing the disciples' faith right now. That's why he's calling them to go out with nothing. Jesus is not saying, future Christians, this is the model of church. Make sure that you never support any missionaries because otherwise they'll never learn faith. The reality is if people are leaving friends and family to go to a different place for the gospel, they've already exhibited an extraordinary amount of faith and God has probably already taught them some serious lessons on faith. And those people deserve to be supported. We support missionaries. We support church planners because we want to do our part and make sure that we draw from God's word the things that we should keep doing and we don't confuse the things that are descriptive as though they should be a model for us. 
Sorry for that detour. It's just something important we need to understand as we study God's word. Jesus continues and says in verse 11, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. What does Jesus mean by worthy? He just means if they receive you and welcome your message, the message that I'm sending you out with. And Jesus says very straightforwardly, if they receive you and they invite you to go into their house, go stay with them. If they welcome the message, they're gonna welcome the messengers as well. Jesus is giving them a model here as well. And the model is this, you're gonna go into a town, you're gonna preach, someone's gonna hear your preaching, they're gonna be blessed by the gospel, they're gonna receive ministry and they're gonna ask you to go stay with them. He says stay in that house because what Jesus wants them to understand is hey, Let's say this situation happens. You go into a town, the first person to welcome you in has a really modest house and you're sort of sleeping on the sofa. But then on your second day of ministry, you get a better offer. You get someone influential who has a villa with a hot tub and they say, come along, we'll sip sangrias in the hot tub and we can talk about the Lord and you can talk to me more and sleep on my uh, down feather mattress bed. It's gonna be the best night's sleep you've ever had at my villa. Jesus says, listen, even if you get a better offer, don't take it, don't take it. It's gonna give the appearance that you're all about the money. And so Jesus gives his disciples just a practical pointer saying, just stay in the first house that welcomed you until you leave that town. Just a practical tip. Verse 12, and when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, so if they receive you in your message, let your peace come upon it. Bless the house. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So what, he, what he's saying is, if they receive you and they welcome you in, speak a blessing over the house and, and I'll bless it. But, and this is the funny side of this, he says, if something goes wrong, so let's say they welcome you at first, but then they start getting real cold to the gospel when they start realizing that it's gonna cost them something and they begin neglecting you and ignoring you and your needs and, and really making it clear that they wish you weren't there anymore. If they do something like that to you and they don't treat you well, Jesus says, take the blessing back. So how would you take a blessing back? Well, in this culture, the rabbis would do it like this. They would speak the same blessing they said when they first got into the house, but then they would reverse it at the end. So it would be something like, Lord, may your peace dwell upon this house. May you financially prosper them and fill them with health and with joy. Not. And that's how they would reverse the blessing. And then Jesus goes on. And he says, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Shaking the dust off one's feet was a very Jewish thing to do. Whenever they were leaving Gentile territory, maybe after traveling through it, they would shake the dust off their feet as a way of showing that they didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. They didn't even want the dust from their territory on their feet. They didn't want any part of them. In our culture, we just give somebody the finger. That's basically what it means in the original language. It was a significant gesture. And Jesus was telling his disciples, if a person won't receive you or the message I'm sending you with, you should just leave and have nothing to do with them. Have a nice life. The idea is accept hospitality when it's offered to you, but if it's not, don't be surprised. Jesus had given his disciples a lesson in this reality just before he sent them out on this exercise. Remember this, he, he let his disciples come with him back to his hometown of Nazareth. And what happened there? Well, Jesus was rejected and mocked by the people from his own hometown. And Jesus let his disciples, the apostles, see that so that they would understand, hey, if, if Jesus was rejected by his own hometown, an entire town, 
I guess we don't really get to take it personally when we get rejected too. The disciples would have that memory deep in them and it would get them through some tough times when people wouldn't receive them. Let me read verse 14 again as we go into verse 15. It says, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's heavy stuff from the mouth of Jesus. There's a lot to consider here. Firstly, Jesus makes it clear that there's a point a person can reach where they are no longer worthy of further ministry. They're no longer worthy of more chances to hear the gospel. They've had ample opportunity. They know enough. They're just choosing to reject Jesus. Shake off the dust from your feet. Jesus had said a similar thing early in his ministry when he had told his disciples, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. But secondly, I want to suggest to you that context matters here, if this seems harsh. So who have the disciples been sent to again? The Jews. Only the Jews. And Jesus, remember, held the Jews to a higher standard than the Gentiles in this regard because the Jews should have recognized them almost immediately. They had a deep knowledge and awareness of the Old Testament. They knew the signs to watch for. They knew more than 300 specific prophecies about the Messiah. They could not claim ignorance. They had been prepared their whole lives to recognize and receive Jesus. So Jesus held them to a higher standard. And we see this on Palm Sunday when only a tiny percentage of the Jews will show up to welcome Jesus as king. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, if you'll remember the story, on a colt, on a donkey, and in Luke's gospel, it says this. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That's the blindness Paul writes about in Romans. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Jesus is describing the destruction of Jerusalem that will take place in 70 AD. And then underline this next word, because, because, this is on your outlines, because you did not know the time of your visitation. A more accurate translation is because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus clearly says that judgment was going to come upon Israel because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. They didn't recognize him and clearly he felt that they should have. They were not ignorant. They had everything they needed. It would be like having uh, a bird watching guidebook that only has one bird in it and that bird lands on a branch right in front of your face and you still say, oh man, I wish I could see a bird like the one in my book. Jesus says, I'm right here. I'm right in front of you. How can you not see me? So remember the context. When Jesus seems harsh toward people not receiving the message, they've been prepared their whole lives. Jesus would go on later to talk about leaving the 99 to go after the one. And certainly most Gentiles, most non-Jews have never, ever been prepared anywhere close to the same way that the Jews have been prepared. So there's going to be a different almost standard for the Gentiles. We'll see. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
I think Jesus was telling his disciples, keep your heart pure, but stay street smart. Use some common sense. The example that I thought of uh, was the guys who smuggle Bibles into China. They're breaking the law, concealing Bibles in cars. They're functioning as criminal smugglers peddling contraband, but all with a pure heart. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And on this, I just want to make one point here. Please don't ever be involved in a gospel bait and switch operation. There's sort of a trend in the modern church to do things like have an event and give away an iPad, and then you're going to make everybody stay to hear the gospel first before you do the drawing for the iPad. It's like a bait and switch at a car dealership, and it's not being wise because it makes Christianity look icky it leaves people with the same feeling that you get from a a slick used car salesman and none of us really enjoy that honestly I've never really seen it work because I've never met the person who had the testimony that said you know I came for the iPad drawing but I stayed for the eternal life I've never ever met anybody who said that it's not ministry it's marketing It's robbing the gospel of its power, and you're never going to see the disciples or Jesus or the early church model anything like that. So be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Keep your heart pure. Verse 17, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, Do not worry. I love this promise. Do not worry about how or what you should speak. Why shouldn't we worry? For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I love that. There will be opportunities created by persecution. Opportunities to witness Opportunities to model fearlessness and peace in the face of adversity. Opportunities to testify that Jesus is worth even more than your life. Verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is so real right now in our world because it's happening right now, especially in the Muslim world and places in Africa. It's been happening since the church was formed in 33 AD. In the Muslim world, you are dead to your family if you leave the faith and become a Christian. Families are being divided and Jesus is the cause. Jesus is the cause. I've told you before about the incredible ministries that exist in some hardline Muslim countries where Christian ministries run secret safe houses because if they share the gospel with somebody and that person decides to receive Jesus, they can't go home. They will be killed by their own family. They have to leave everything and go immediately to the safe house and then they figure out where they can send them, where they can start a new life as a Christian. Wives cannot go home to their husbands because their husbands will kill them. Families can't go back to their neighborhoods. Their community will stone them to death, kill them. Families are divided and Jesus is the cause. And no one can ever accuse Jesus of not being forthright about this. He is so upfront. You can't be more upfront than you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
It's exactly what happened to the early church. The early church faced a succession of 10 anti-Christ Roman emperors for almost 300 years who were devoted to making the Christian an extinct species. And they set about their task with a satanic and demonic level of perverse cruelty. Historians estimate that as many as 175 Christians may have been martyred during those 300 years. That tells me that the gospel was spreading like wildfire. And even with all those people being martyred, the church couldn't be stopped. There's nothing like the power of the gospel. There's nothing like the power of the gospel. I am always hesitant to share the stories of martyrs on a Sunday morning because I find them so personally overwhelming. I don't know how I would get through it. I couldn't read you a story, but I will say this. You need to read those stories. Every believer does on a regular basis. If you don't know where to start, go on Amazon, buy a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, get alone and read it because you will weep. I guarantee it. You and I need those reminders that this is not a hobby. This is not a lifestyle choice. Church is not a club. Jesus is everything. He is more valuable than anything, even our lives. And as we keep working our way through this chapter and the rest of Jesus' ministry, you will never find Jesus apologizing for things being this way. Not even once. And that's because Jesus knows that he's worth it. He knows that he's worth it. He knows what's waiting in eternity for those who love him all the way to the end. And he knows it's worth it. And then Jesus says this, but he who endures to the end will be saved. We're going to close by explaining this because we, we need to explain this. He who endures to the end will be saved. At first, this verse can seem really confusing. It can raise questions like, does that mean I can lose my salvation if I don't endure to the end? Why is Jesus speaking in the future tense? Why is he saying we'll be saved? I thought I was saved already. It's so important when you read something in the Bible to weigh it against everything else in the Bible, the character of God. Jesus is never going to contradict himself. So if we're going to form a belief or a doctrine on a specific verse or point in the Bible, it has to be in harmony. It has to be in unity with everything else in the Bible. And it needs to account for everything else the Bible says about that subject. In other words, your interpretation of a verse or portion of scripture can't make something else in the Bible not be true. It has to all work together. It's really important that you understand that. Here's what I would suggest to you. We believe that if you examine the whole Bible, it speaks to what's known as eternal security. All that means is that once you're saved, once you are brought into the family of God, you're there forever. You can't be lost and you can't lose your salvation. 99.99% of the time, I believe the question is not, can they lose their salvation? The question is, were they ever saved? Were they ever saved? Sometimes it's made to seem that if you just prayed a prayer, then you're saved. You might have been, you might not have been. The evidence in your life, what the Bible calls fruit, will be revealed in the weeks and months and years that follow that prayer. If you really are saved, if you really believe that Jesus died for you on the cross in your place to save you at the expense of his own life, shedding his own blood for you to bring you into his family, if you really believe that, you will endure to the end. 
It's not the enduring that will save you. You will endure because you are saved, because you love Jesus that much. I know it's a bit complicated, but the simplest way to view it is that perseverance, not quitting, and endurance are some of the defining characteristics of someone being saved. It's some of the fruit you see in the life of someone who belongs to Jesus. The whole book of James is all about this. It's not your works that save you, it's faith that saves you. How do you know if you have a saving faith? It will naturally produce good works, like endurance and perseverance in your life. If you still don't get it, go study the book of James. You still won't get it, so read the book of James again and keep reading it until you get it. I promise the Lord will help you to understand it. Listen, if you're going through a season of survival faith, be encouraged. It's a season. But it's a season that can often be made shorter by choosing to trust God quickly, moving to the place of faith. Learn the lesson quickly. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And if that's you today, just thank Jesus that he's enough. Release your fears and doubts to him. Cast your cares on him and ask him to fill you with faith where you are presently filled with fear. If because you're following Jesus, you're experiencing strife and division in your family or your marriage or your job or anywhere else, be encouraged. Jesus said it would be like this. He sees it all, and he is with you in it all. More than that, he is worth it. He's worth it. Just pray and ask him for peace. It's okay to ask him for affirmation. You know, sometimes we just need to hear God say, you're doing the right thing. Keep going. It's okay to ask for that. For all of us, we need to check our own hearts and make sure that we're prepared to endure all the way to the end. That if the world comes crashing down and we're faced with the choice of Jesus or death, we are ready to choose Jesus. For many of us, that might seem like an easy choice. We're ready to die for Jesus. But we also need to ask the question if we're ready to die to ourselves every day. Are we ready to choose life in Christ over life in ourselves? Are we ready to choose life in Christ over dating the non-believer that we know we shouldn't be with? Are we ready to choose life in Christ instead of sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend? Are we ready to choose life in Christ over our secret habit of pornography? Are we ready to choose life in Christ over being lazy when our boss isn't looking? Over being lazy about caring for our spouse and loving our spouse well? How are we doing at dying to ourselves every day? That's often the harder death to die than the physical death. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to pray for you. If you are here, you're hearing this, and for the first time, you realize that you need to give your life to Jesus. That's an invitation that you want to respond to. Then I just want to pray for you right now. And you just agree with this in your heart. Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to shed his blood and die for me in my place. God, I believe that. You've made it possible for me to believe that. And because I believe that, I want to start my journey with you. And I know that you're the one who qualifies me to do that. So even though I might not know anything else, I know that I want to belong to you. And I believe that because you said I could, I do now belong to you. And Jesus, I will choose to follow you anywhere. You lead, I will follow. If you agreed with that prayer, we believe you've come into the family of God. And now follow him. Follow him follow him. 
for the rest of us, let me pray. Father, would you help us to die to ourselves every day? to be ready to die physically, but to die to our own will every day and to instead live the glorious, amazing, fulfilling, peace-filled, joy-filled life in you that you offer to us every day. Help us not to settle for anything less, God. I pray for faith and encouragement for every person who's in a season of survival faith, I pray for endurance and strength for every person who is going through a hard time because they're choosing to follow you. God, keep them strong. Thank you that you will. And now to he who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine, to him be the glory through Christ Jesus in the church, both now and in the ages to come, forever and ever. Amen.